Comics. Movies. Music. Video games. Technology. Blu-ray. Television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. The HHW LOD Podcast Network proudly presents Real Heroes, the podcast that takes a critical look at comic book movies. The good. I am Iron Man. The bad. I punish the guilty. And the worthless. I am the law. Welcome to Real Heroes, our episode on The Wolverine. This is Russ, and joining with me tonight are Jim and Jordan. Hey, how's it going? Not just any Wolverine, THE Wolverine. THE Wolverine, yes. Uh, So I'm really excited about this. I think this one was one of those that's had a little bit of a tumultuous origin. It's it's switched directors, uh, it's, it's changed directions. I know Darren Aronofsky was tied to it for a very long time. And then, for whatever reason, uh, decided that he didn't want to be away from home uh, for as long and then dropped out, which seems kind of weird because Fox has that big Australia studio and that's where they seem to film a lot of it. And then this one, of course, with, you know, being filmed somewhat in Japan. And then we had the, uh, the Fukushima uh, disaster, unfortunately, that, uh, that, that caused some delays. But it's finally here. It's finally out. And, uh, we've all seen it. So let's get into the numbers as we do on this show. Uh, again, movie was released on July 26th of 2013. Um, had an opening weekend of 53 million, which was uh, the source of a lot of uh, discussion. That a lot of folks are saying it's a disappointment, it's a bomb. Uh, you know, it didn't. It you know, it was in danger of not doing so well because uh, originally they were Fox was hoping for like 65 or 70 million, and then. Because of general soft box office sales, they downgraded their estimates some to, at one point, I think they were afraid it was going to even do like 35 or 36. Uh, and then good word of mouth and a strong opening weekend uh, delivered 53 million, which, which I thought was pretty decent. But given how X-Men movies have done in the past, how the first X-Men Origins Wolverine movie did, uh, a little bit disappointing that it didn't do better. Yeah, but I mean, look at movies like R.I.P.D. or uh, Lone Ranger or uh, Red Two that were just like dead in the water uh, opening weekend and didn't even you know bring in as much as the Wolverine did. Um, I yeah. mean, I mean, you know, I think it's kind of not I wouldn't say premature to call it a bomb, you know, compared to those other movies. But probably, uh, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't consider it a you know a bomb in, in the light of those other films. Um, I know, uh, you know, uh, the. The general, uh, consensus, I mean, Metacritic gave it, uh, six out of, uh, 60 out of 100. And, uh, uh, 7.2 on IMDb from 45,000 users who've seen it. So, I mean, that's, that's a pretty decent rating. I know that's, that's rating higher than the last Wolverine movie. And, um, you know, at least, you know, with the, the audiences and the critics, it seems to be rating a little higher, even if it's not doing as well. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And it's, it's, it's got some pretty decent legs. Um, so far the domestic gross, and this is, uh, two weekends in is 95 million. 
uh, on a budget of 120 million, so not bad at all. The foreign gross, though, is is really strong, which isn't really surprising given this movie. I think it I think it does have some international appeal, especially with the Japanese setting. The foreign gross uh, is sitting uh, at 159 million again after two weeks. So so total, it's at 254 million on a 120 million dollar budget. Uh, so I, I think it's safe to say that given the rest of the summer, video rights, you know, Netflix, you know, streaming, etc. Uh, I, I think this one's definitely, uh, you know, a win in the profit column for um, for Fox for sure. It's also funny how some movies who have done that have done like you know, are perceived to have done like middling business here in America, have gone on to really rake it in overseas. I mean, Wolverine for, is a good example. I mean, making much more overseas than, than it is here in America. Pacific Rim, same deal. You know, I mean, it would open, it was the strongest opening in China for a movie ever uh, in, in, from the West. So I mean, we were seeing a lot of these movies this summer uh, making their money overseas. And I think the Wolverine is going to be one of those movies that has a really good word of mouth. Yeah, um, because while not every reaction to it has been positive, it's been much more positive than the first one. And uh, I think the first one probably did more to hurt this one than anything else. But good word of mouth could change that eventually. Yeah, I agree. I mean, people who only, um, you know, their their idea of a Wolverine solo story was the last movie. And, you know, it wasn't very well regarded by most people. So I think, you know, that might have left a sour taste in some audience's mouth. But I do think like Russ and, and, and you're also saying, Jordan, that it will have legs. You know, I don't think it's going to blink out with uh, with some other you know big releases coming up. I think it'll it'll stick around for a few weeks on the top ten list at least. Yeah, and I think this is a little bit of fatigue. Maybe I think it's that we've had a big enough gap through X Men movies, and I think they kind of hit their peak out in the early two thousands. You know, X Two was huge. I mean, it did extreme gangbusters. Uh, and then X3 had a really, really solid opening weekend, but the movie was trashed, and so people were kind of soured on it. So I don't know if between X3 and X-Men Origins Wolverine and the big boost at the beginning and then the very, very you know fast fall-off and the, and the general negative critical reception had something to do with it. Um, but I, I, really, I really wish that this one had done a little better. It, it makes me a little nervous about uh, X-Men Days of Future Past, but I think the smart thing with that is they are doing everything they can to keep that in the public consciousness. I mean, Singer is tweeting out constantly. I've seen the whole... They, they released a recent picture, uh, and we'll get into this, I think, a little bit more when we get to the to the post credit scene, But and not to get too far off track, um, but the scene with, with Brian Singer and the giant, you know, Sentinel, uh, you know, that made, like, you know, the front... front page quote-unquote of msn.com and yahoo so i think they're playing it smart that they're using maybe a little bit of this momentum they have on the wolverine to carry them forward and hopefully generate some really positive buzz uh, about days of future past i also think i I mean it hasn't all been bad i mean some of the some of that goodwill has been bought bought back by uh you know x-men first class i mean it was both critically well regarded and a financial success so um, you know, I mean, that w- that was a real big boost for the franchise. And I think this movie, you know, with the, it being, a, you know, critically and, and audience-wise uh, more well-regarded than the last, is going to help that momentum going to Days of Future Past, I think. I mean, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Uh, looking at the scores, you know, Jim mentioned the Metascore uh, at 60. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes has it at 68% fresh. Uh, that's the critic review. So that's that's not too bad. Um, the audience reception has been 75%, which is still pretty good. Uh, this is a little bit of a n- more narrow 
ranking between the two than we've seen. Uh, lately, it seems like the, the critical score has been you know, fairly low and the audience score has been very high. But this one seems to be you know, pretty close to, to, to even keel between the critics and the audience. Getting into the, the cast and the crew, uh, this one was directed by James Mangold, who up to this point had, had done the remake of 310 to Yuma, uh, the movie Copland that was made, I guess, in the late 90s. Uh, and then uh, recently the uh, Cameron Diaz, uh, Tom Cruise movie Night and Day. Um, so he's he's got a little bit of action mixed in, um, you know. But but really his directorial cr- uh, career has been kind of built, I think, on um, character pieces or um, you know uh, movies that have been focused, I think, more on story than they have on the action. While there's been action in some of it, with the exception of Night and Day, I I I, I, I would say. But as far as like Three Ten to Yuma and Copland, those are you know pretty big character pieces and more about tension and. Uh, things like that, and I thought I thought they were both very very well done. Um, so, like like we mentioned earlier, Aronofsky was attached to this movie for a very long time, um, and and bowed out, and I think that made people nervous. And then Mangold stepped in, and I think he he knocked it out of the park. To be honest with you, well, I think Mangold was an interesting choice, especially I mean he's an Oscar nominated director for Walk the Line. I mean, then talk yeah. about a character piece. I mean that uh, that is like one of the. Um, I mean, the character there is the you know, the love affair between Johnny Cash and Gene Carter Cash, and I really liked that movie. I thought that was really good. So between that, I really enjoyed Three Ten to Yuma as well. I thought that was a really well well made movie. I mean, between the two, I was I was pretty uh, happy with the choice of Mangold. I thought Aronofsky might have gone a little strange with it because sometimes he. I mean, if you look at his work with Jackman in The Fountain, I mean, that's kind <coughs> the of, Fountain, uh, yeah, yeah, that's kind of. Um, off the, off the reservation in, in a number of ways. So I thought Mangold, you know, you're, you're bringing in, you know, the cachet of having a, an A-list director here, you know, who knows how to direct action, like you said. Night and Day, not a great movie, but a lot of action in it. So he got some, you know, chops doing that. And I think it shows in this movie. I mean, the action sequences are very well done in this film, I thought. Yeah. Yeah, even some of the ones that looked kind of dicey from the trailers, I thought played out well in the actual full film. So it was written by the team of Mark Bombeck and Scott Frank. And Bombeck, uh, after this, will be doing the new 24 series on Fox. So it's going to be this, I guess, what is it, 12 or 15 episode, uh, you know, shortened season for to bring back 24, which I think I'm 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 excited about. I I, I was a big fan of 24. I'll be curious to see what they do uh, with this. He's also he also wrote. Live Free or Die Hard, which I thought was a pretty solid entry in in the series, uh, much much better than than the recent one we got, uh, and to, and the Total Recall remake. He he was a screenwriter on that as well. And interesting, I know uh, to our friend Johnny M and to me, he's writing the screenplay for the uh, the next Planet of the Apes movie. Uh, oh Dawn, yes, Dawn yes. of the Planet of the Apes. Um, and the, you know the last one with James Franco was a lot better than it had a right to be. So I'm pretty excited to see that. And honestly, despite the fact that I like James Franco, I thought he was the weakest part of that movie. So I'm almost more excited for this one because he's not in it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I have to agree. Um, uh, Andrew Serkis stole that movie. I mean, I, I even said that on our duties uh, that year that he should have gotten a special Oscar nomination for that performance of Caesar. That was just outstanding. Yeah, absolutely. So Scott Frank, uh, another, I guess, uh, Philip K. Dick alum who wrote the screenplay for Minority Report. Um, as well as Out of Sight and then the Karen Sisko TV series. So again, solid. I think those 
are, you know, whether you actually like the movie or not, I think the writing was pretty solid on them. I mean, Minority Report is one of my, probably one of my favorite, like, true, you know, hard science fiction films of all time. I just, I love, you know, people can take or leave Tom Cruise. Some people hate him. Some people don't. Um, but I thought, I thought it was just an outstanding flick. One of Spielberg's better, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I liked his uh, screenplay for Get Shorty. I always thought that was well well written. Um, plus, he has some experience as a director, so he has a cinematic aspect to his, uh, um, you know, to his writing. I'm sure. Yeah. The score this time was done by Marco Beltrami, who is another one of these guys that just does a ton, a ton of of film scores, and uh, some of his credits uh, right off the top are the original Resident Evil movie, Blade Two. Hellboy, T3, uh, so, you know, he's got some experience with Guillermo del Toro, um, and then the third Terminator movie kind of, kind of pulling off of what came before it. So, I thought the score in this thing was, was pretty good. I, I, it had kind of a, and you guys tell me what you think, but especially like that closing credits music, it almost kind of had like a western vibe to it a little bit. Well, there was a number of things in this movie that I thought had somewhat western vibes, and I like that because it was, yeah. Sort of in that whole Seven Samurai Mysterious Seven feel where you kind of blend um, the the elements of a samurai movie with a little bit of, of Western stuff in there. And I thought it worked actually pretty well, particularly when you're dealing with Wolverine as the cowboy, if you will, in this samurai adventure. And I, I thought that worked pretty well. Yeah, no, I totally agree. So we get to the cast. Of course, we have Hugh Jackman making his sixth outing as Wolverine, if you count the brief, brief appearance he did in x-men first class um and i do because it's awesome yes yes indeed that seems to be his uh he's he's kind of got his tagline much like john mcclain does in the Die Hard movies i think uh um go f yourself is 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 his his thing now <laughs> <laughs> but again just mad mad props to to hugh jackman i mean he fully recognizes that this role has allowed him the level of stardom that he has you know, achieved and he's been granted in the last 13 years. Uh, you know, it, it, he embraces it. He loves it. He really, you know, kind of takes it to heart. He, he works his ass off to get into shape for this thing. Um, and I, I just have a lot of respect for someone that, that does that because he could have easily just done the first three X-Men movies and just said, yeah, I'm done. I'm, you know, I've got more important things to do, but he, you know, and we've talked about this before. We talked about this on when we did our X-Men origins Wolverine episode, he, he's just, you know, you just love it when an actor, you know, behaves that way and acts that way and doesn't, you know, take it and act like a, you know, like a big old jackass. Well, he knows he wouldn't have the opportunities that he has now to be in like Academy Award nominated films like Les Mis or whatever. If he hadn't been known for playing Wolverine, you know what I mean? That was what really put him on the map. So I think that's, that's why, you know, I wouldn't want to say like he feels like he owes a debt, but maybe he, you know, I mean, that's what really brought him over here and allowed him to do everything else he's been able to do with his career. So. And it also helps that despite the fact that we all think of him as Wolverine, he's really managed not to be typecast. I mean, I see him yes. pop up in films all the time, comedies, drama, uh, romantic comedies, action films playing very different characters every time and despite the fact that like i said we all think of him as wolverine he's been able to enjoy just shoehorned into wolverine or wolverine type characters so when he comes back to that it's not like oh this again or at least that's not the impression that i get 
Yeah, he was also in a musical on Broadway for a while, and I can't remember which one off the top of my head, but for about a year's run, he, he did I want to say The Music Man, but I don't know where I'm pulling that from, so that could be completely wrong. I'm really not a musical guy. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, I think he's. I think actually he's been in several, because I know he's been either won or been nominated for Tony Awards many times. He's hosted, <laughs> he's hosted that show, I think, several times as well. So he's a big song and dance guy, um, other than acting, but... Uh, but yeah, just just you know, again, he, I love to see when somebody embraces something like that and isn't afraid. I mean, he's always out there promoting it and and everything else. So I was definitely among the skeptical when he was first cast, and it was listed that he was like six foot six foot one um, and a relatively unknown. But I was no fan of Dugray Scott when he was originally cast in X One either. Uh, so I think. I definitely feel I'm not a huge fan of Dugray Scott. I don't think I don't know. He was in Mission Impossible too. I've seen him in other things, and I wasn't a big fan. Um, Jackman was pretty much an unknown, but knowing what I know about each one of them and their acting styles, I, I definitely think things worked out for the better. Well, I, I did hear a story from San Diego Comic Con that Hugh Jackman went on the floor dressed in full Wolverine uh, outfit. One of the things uh, one of the fanboys on the floor told him was he was too too tall to cosplay Wolverine. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I thought that was hilarious. But I think he's really kind of made the role his own. I had the same reservations as you, Russ, because I, you know, I have the history with the character going back through the Claremont Byrne uh, X-Men comics that I grew up with. Um, you know, when they'd call him Runt, you know, when he was all, when Byrne always drew him like a foot shorter than everyone else in the room. Um, so, but I really think he owns the role. I mean, I can't. I can't picture another actor now who would have done. Yeah, I, I'd job. always much rather have a good actor in a role than someone who fits every physical aspect. Like, th- there are many more things I can get, ex- uh, you know, angry about the the first Spider-Man trilogy for other than just the fact that Peter Parker's eyes are supposed to be hazel, and they even point out that they're so blue blue in this movie. And no, I I, sh- I want to focus on the the story, the acting, the characters, and not eye color, height, uh, you know, the, the particular way their beard is cut or whatever. As long as they're good actors and they're doing a reasonable facsimile of that of that character, that's what I'm more excited about. I think Tobey Maguire's eye color was probably the least of his problems with that performance. Uh, exactly. But anyway. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So then I'll kind of run down the rest of the cast. A lot of this, um, unfortunately for me, is going to be a bunch of relative or a bunch of unknowns. I think most of these folks are... I can help, I can help here a little bit if you don't mind. Please do. Uh, Tao Okamoto and Rita Fukushima, these are both their first movies. Um, they're both known in the modeling world in, in Asia, especially in Japan. Um, Tao Okamoto has been modeling since she was like 14. She played Mariko. And she's and, stunningly um, beautiful. I mean, just very attractive. Beautiful, beautiful woman. And um, decent enough acting, I thought. I thought yeah. she did a decent enough job as Mariko, getting us you know, to kind of uh, understand her and her yeah, character. Yeah, solid. From. But the one that... Yeah, but the one that really stood out for me in this whole movie was uh, was Rita Fukushima, who played Yukio. Um, she's done a lot of modeling as well, and this is also her first movie. But uh, I thought she did great, especially, I mean, knowing the character Yukio, as I do from the uh, Claremont Miller uh, miniseries, uh, that this is not an adaptation from, but definitely inspired by in a lot of ways. Um, I really thought she nailed that character. I thought, you know, her kind of take on, on Wolverine and the situation as the movie went on was just great. I thought, I thought that was... One of my favorite performances in the movie. Uh, Hiroyuki Sonata has been making movies since the, the, the mid eighties in, in Japan and Hong Kong cinema. Uh, he's worked with John Woo. He's worked with Wu Ping. He's been in, um, 
tons and tons of films over the years. Um, mostly, like I said, in the Asian audience. Uh, he has done some, some American films. He was in Sunshine. Uh, he was in, uh, Speed Racer. He was the, uh, the Asian rival to Speed Racer yes. in that movie. Um, uh, that, uh, Speed ends up having to help out. But he's been in a ton, ton of Asian movies, uh, uh, Japanese films, also Hong Kong films. And the first time I ever saw him actually was in the, the TV series Shadow Warriors, which was, um, uh, Sonny Chiba's TV series in Japan in the 70s and 80s. He was a big, uh, player on that. But I thought his, uh, his portrayal in this movie, I thought of Harada was great. I just thought it was really good. And I wish, um, you know, spoiler for the ending here, or Shinjin, I'm sorry. But, um, I, I, spoiler for the ending here, I wish he had been, um, the Silver Samurai rather than who it turned out to be. But we'll talk about the third act when we get there. Yeah, yeah. Now, Svetlana Kojinkova reminded me very much of the woman who's, at, the actress whose name escapes me right now, who played the same character in Nick Fury Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. Because both were terrible. Yes, yeah. and way over the oh. top. Way over the top. Yeah, not a. I, yeah, we'll get into that, but I think that character was uh, somewhat useless, in my opinion. Um, I think she just had her, pl- her plot point to fill out, but but that's that's about it. Um, she just felt like she was out of a completely different, terrible movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, she did not fit at all. Just to get just to go back real quick on on Rila Fukushima as Yukio. Uh, you know, one of the things uh, we'll do a little bit of comparison, maybe. Now, I don't want to get too much into it because again. You know, the focus of Real Heroes is on the movie itself and not so much on the source material. Um, but her version of Yukio had all the badassness that the, the Claremont Miller Yukio had. Um, she, the, the look was completely different. I mean, she didn't look anything like the Yukio in the book. Um, and in the, in the book, her and Wolverine kind of got into a romantic relationship. Uh, and, and it's kind of like one of those, I don't know, like, two people that are very similar and just have this like no strings attached mutual attraction you know kind of thing going on um so they like to you know kind of be adults at times um and that that didn't happen in here but i did see a little bit of like a combination of the yukio character and maybe like a kitty pride like that relationship he had with kitty pride or jubilee where she kind of looked at him um fondly but but more like a like a mentor father figure type not so much as a romantic interest is is kind of what i got out of it um because she was so willing to want to try and learn from him and and be around him and then of course where the movie ends the the two of them kind of go off together um that had a very much like a like a kitty pride and wolverine vibe to me than anything else right they weren't going off together romantically they were going off together to go kick some ass exactly yeah and I'm glad they kept that story part out of this because I think that it would have been confusing. Yeah. You know, with him, you know, kind of courting Mariko. And that was like the whole main thrust of that, the story. I mean, like you said, not to draw too much from the source material, but you know, that was the main thrust of the story in the, in the miniseries and the UK thing, which is kind of a, I don't know, it's kind of a Frank Moore superfluous thing, I think anyway. But uh, I thought this was, yeah, the way this was portrayed. I, I can see the Kitty Pride comparison you're making. Definitely, it's just like student mentor type yeah. thing. I mean, even when Yukio first meets him in Alaska, you know, you know, she says it's an honor to meet the Wolverine. Yeah, you know? yeah. And the Mariko character, uh, Teo Akamoto, did I think a fantastic job. She was very, very close, in my opinion, to the to the character of the book. Very honor bound, honor driven. You know, wanting to do what's best for the family. 
a couple of the other characters we have, and it's funny because Hiroki Sonata's uh, Shingen and um, Hal uh, Yamanuchi as as Yoshida, they were kind of like an amalgam. Like in the comics, they were just one character. Like Shingen Yoshida was the main guy and kind of a bad guy and head of the the Yoshida family and got mixed in with the Yakuza and and everything else. And I think just because of of the age gap, they, they just used, they just kind of split that character in half, it, it seems, to, to kind of bridge the time gap. You know, having Wolverine have rescued somebody in World War II made sense, but you couldn't really have Mariko be, you know, Yoshida's daughter if she's supposed to be, you know, relatively young. So I, I think they did, you know, again, it was just kind of one of those story things. Um, but he was kind of like, you know, it's funny, most of the time in stories they take multiple characters and make them into one. It seems like for this they did the opposite. They took one character and made him into, into multiple. <laughs> I thought for the most part it worked, though. I mean, yeah, I, I'm sure we'll get into it. There's a couple things in the movie that get a little bit confusing in terms of who is on whose side and who's working for whom at what point. And who wants who dead? I mean, you figure everybody's against Wolverine and wants him dead at various points of the movie. But as for how they all relate to each other, it gets a little bit confusing. But I don't know that that was the fault of splitting the character. I think in general it did work in the film. Yeah, and then lastly we had uh, we had Will, Will Yoon Lee who played Harada. And again, in the comics, he's he's the Silver Samurai. Harada is is the uh, the the Silver Samurai, and um, he's, he's been a lot of, he's like one of those guys where you see his face and you're like, yeah, you look very familiar and he's just done a ton of stuff. Like you look, you know, through his IMDb page and he, he's just got a ton of credits. He's done a lot of voiceover work too. Um, you know, he's just done a lot of video game work, sleeping dogs, but he, he's been in, uh, he was in the Red Dawn remake. Uh, he was in the Total Recall remake. Um, he's just, he's been in, like I said, he's just been in a ton of stuff and, and he's one of the, again, one of those characters, when you see him, you'll kind of recognize, you know, that you've seen him in other stuff. Yeah. Well, now that you say Red Dawn, I definitely remember who he was in that. Yeah. So. He's got a very familiar face. He's like one of those, one of those character actors that, uh, that just kind of keeps popping up. But I, I, you know, again, to kind of go with this movie, it was kind of a tight, tight cast. You know, this wasn't, this is no days of future past where it's going to have, you know, a cast list longer than your arm. Uh, and, and even some other superhero movies where there's, you know, your main characters and your, and your sub characters. This was pretty tight. I mean, there was a lot of nameless ninjas, uh, you know, floating around and stuff like that. Um, but for the most part, it was, the casting was, was fairly tight and, and, and small and, and worked for the most part. Like I said, you know, I think we, we've kind of named out the few exceptions. Um, but, but overall, I was very pleased with, with how they, how they did this. Um, and, and I think they did a good job with, with the cast. So the the movie starts off back in 1945, you know, right bef- right as the bomb is falling on Nagasaki, which I thought was an interesting way to do this, and and it seems to be pretty fitting of X Men movies. I mean, we saw at the be you know the beginning of of X of the first X Men movie, we saw at the beginning of uh, X Men First Class, we've seen at the beginning of X Men Origins Wolverine that it kind of started out in in the past and quickly catches up. To, up to, up to speed, so it's kind of one of those those things that we've come to know. Um, and it starts out with Wolverine in a Japanese prison camp uh, near Nagasaki, and uh, and the bomb goes off, and he saves the main character of that we come to know as Yoshida back in World War II by by holding a piece of lead uh, over him as the bomb goes off, and it it kind of uh, flash fries Wolverine's skin, which it quickly heals back as as we see. 
But I thought that was a fairly well done sequence, other than the plane. Somehow I don't think when that bomb actually fell, anybody saw the plane uh, dropping the bomb. Some, something tells me that thing was flying pretty dang high um, and got out of there in a pretty big hurry before that before that nuke went off. I wish I knew more about uh, how high the <laughs> uh, Fat Man and Little Boy were flying. Uh, well, I guess those were the bombs and not the planes, but uh, the Enola Gay and whatever the other one was called. Um I don't know. I, I thought it worked. I, it didn't jump out to me that that doesn't seem right that they'd be able to see the plane. Um, and even if they historically shouldn't have been able to, I thought it worked pretty well in giving them time to let the prisoners free and for the ones who chose to to um, commit seppuku and it just give enough time for, for Wolverine and uh, now I'm forgetting the character's name, or Yoshida, to, to interact and, and to set up Yoshida's character a little bit and set up uh, his own motivations and his own hesitations as to whether he was going to follow the pack or not. Yeah, I thought it was cool. It was it was interesting. Um, they always, I remember at the beginning of X-Men Origins Wolverine, they had a bunch of flashbacks. The two brothers fighting in a bunch of different wars. Uh, this kind of fits somewhere in, the, in there for me, I think. You know, that kind of you know historical context for Wolverine. Um, it, it does set up the the rest of the story though pretty well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I like how they they filled in more gaps as the story went on. So we got to see, you know, him, you know, initially save his life, and then as it went on, we got to see a little more. Like he gave him, he tried to give him the sword, and you know, he he saw him healing after being flash fried. So it's like we didn't get everything. I thought it was going to be once we saw that bit in the beginning. That that was it. We got everything we we needed to know, and so that was kind of cool. When there was a couple more spots within the within the story that we got to flash back to that and and flesh it out a little more instead of just kind of throwing it all at us at once. I, I thought that was that was a fairly good choice. I thought if he had spent that much time in Japan among the Japanese people, though, he would have learned Japanese. Yeah. Well, he was a busy man at that point. I mean, he was uh, storming Normandy, and he was also fighting right, in the Pacific get, Theater, so I don't know how I much time you. he had time just, to learn the languages. I, I remember him speaking Japanese in the comic. Yeah. Because I knew he had a long, long history with you know, with Shida and stuff, so. Agreed. That was, like, the, one of the few things that bothered me about the movie. I know it's kind of a stupid nitpick, but... I didn't mind having the flashbacks uh, split up a little bit throughout the narrative. I, I would say, however, that I think that perhaps the sword scene should not have been what was severed out um, into the center of the movie, because I, I think it might have had more impact if when Wolverine first sees that sword in the car, we already knew what it meant and that, oh, this is a big deal that I, I've, I'm seeing the sword again for the first time in, you know, 70 years, instead of it just being, what's that in the back seat? Oh, it's a sword. And then later finding out that, you know, it's important. I mean, I guess it works either way. I just think it would have worked better if we knew first. Yeah, true, true. Then we're kind of hit pretty early on as well with, you know, it's funny, peop, I've had a few people I work with ask me, uh, you know, they you know they know I go to the movies all the time and they're in, I'm into, you know, most of the comic book stuff. And, you know, I, I'll say, oh, yeah, I went and saw the Wolverine or they asked me if I saw it. And I've had a couple of people ask me, well, I haven't, I haven't seen the other one. Do I need to see, you know, the, the first, you know, movie before I see this one? And I'm like, not really. Um you know, in fact, you know, depending on what you think of it, that may turn you off on wanting to see the second one. What's more important, I think, that you see is uh, The Last Stand because, you know, of all the Jean Grey stuff flown in. I could see if somebody hasn't seen X-Men 3, although I think you can get it pretty quick as to what was going on, but 
I, I think if you saw that movie, it, it definitely would have more of an impact to you as to what's exactly going on. Yeah, we were talking about this on Out Now, and why I, in most respects, agree with you. I, I think enough is left in there of, this is a woman he loved, she's no longer around, and it's made clear that he killed her, and he feels really sorry about that. And so, while seeing X-Men 3 would um, broaden your understanding of that, it would also mean you'd have to sit through X-Men 3. So I think, yeah. in general, you'll be, able to, you'll be able to understand it, and you'll be a much happier person for just watching this one. Yeah, more more of that continuity plays into this, especially with the uh, book ending scenes with Famke Jansen um, at the beginning and end of the movie. And honestly, I don't think anything in this movie springs out of uh, X Men Origins Wolverine. I mean, aside from that, they're both about Wolverine. I don't think anything is picked up from that movie. I mean, the only thing that you could maybe go if you want to go that route is the Bone Claws. You know, because that's something they established. That's true. You know, in that movie, and, and just the fact that he's been alive for that long. You know, how long has he been alive? But those are very, very minor. I mean, the, you know, anybody that knows anything about the Wolverine character knows his bones were, you know, laced with adamantium and you know, yada yada yada. Um, and honestly, you could get that from just seeing X two, which is a much better movie. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, but I thought they did disregard one part of that continuity pretty heavily, though, is that his memory loss. Because he remembers saving Yoshida and stuff. Yeah, but that happened... Oh, that's a good point. It's actually something I hadn't thought about, yeah. Because, I mean, he's supposed to... When they, in, in the end of X-Men Origins Wolverine, spoilers for a really crappy movie, sorry, Russ, uh, he gets shot with that adamantium bullet in the head, and that supposedly wipes his memory, and that's why him and Xavier are trying to figure out who he was and where he came from and whatnot. But yet, in this movie, he remembers 1945 in Nagasaki. So... Yeah, and maybe the whole, I, I don't, total speculation here, but maybe what they're trying to say is that bullet to the head didn't kill all his memories. It just killed maybe some of his more recent memories or left holes, like, or maybe they're what they're saying. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean, that's, that's all I can get out of that. Um, is that he has memories of his distant past, but not his, uh, somewhat recent past, maybe. I don't know. Just a guess. I don't know. I figured in that movie, like he forgot everything before that because I mean, he comes to Xavier to find out who he is. Right, right. right you know I mean, right. I mean, don't get me wrong; it didn't ruin this movie for me. It just seemed out and kind of weird that if they're going to adhere to that continuity, that they didn't adhere to that part of it. Yeah, and I mean, to be fair, they they played a little fast and loose with with that continuity between movies in general. So. Um, but yeah, overall though, I think the Jean Grey stuff worked a lot better than I thought. I really was a little concerned, and I thought it was just going to be. I honestly thought it was she was going to appear in one sequence, like he was either dreaming or hallucinating or something like that, and then that was going to be it. And I thought it was really interesting that they kept that as kind of like this recurring theme throughout the the movie. You know, is is his guilt over having to kill her, and then in the end, his you know realization that. You know, Gene, I had to kill you because you were evil and killing people, and I can't keep tearing myself up over this. I can't keep feeling guilty about what I had to do because it, I had to do it. Yeah, I, I thought it worked well. I mean, I, I don't think I would have had a problem if it had just been the one time, but the recurringness of it um, definitely helped cement that into the character. 
Right, and if people hadn't seen what happened in X3, it kind of gave them an idea of, that he's being haunted by having had to kill Gene. Yeah. You know, even if they hadn't sat through the Brett Ratner movie. So. Yeah. One of the things, and this is just a total X-Men geek right here, one of the things they've done with Gene Grey and the Phoenix is they've put in this concept of the white-hot room where all these Phoenix entities live. So the fact that, like, every time he was dreaming, and I know part of it was meant to, to emote that he was either you know especially at the end like he was dead or dying or whatever um but i just to me i just i kind of i kind of connected with her being the phoenix in that whole aspect of it which i thought was kind of cool uh, i have no idea if that was intentional or not or if they were again just trying to evoke the fact that she's dead and it's the whole you know move towards the light kind of kind of thing but that's just something that uh that i thought about if there are any Final Fantasy geeks listening, this reminded me very much of the uh, end of Final Fantasy Advent Children, when the guy's dead girlfriend comes, you know, out of the white light to send him back into the world. Yeah. Um. So a couple things that I was uh, I, that really impressed me with this movie, uh, and they're very minor things, but stuff that they've done in the books, um, and that were a big, big part of the book to help evoke. Again, the, I think the story was very far apart from what they did in the Miller Claremont series, but I think they got the essence of it very well. Um, was they kept referring to Wolverine as Gaijin, which is kind of like a, more or less like a slur for white man in, in Japan, but it was so prevalent in the book. Um, and I love that they kept saying it in the, in, in the movie. I, I just thought that was, a, that was a nice touch to include that in there. Um, and the other was they called them black hand ninjas. And I'm not sure if it's because um, Marvel has back rights to the hand. I know Fox did have the Daredevil rights, um, and I'm not sure where they lie. So I don't know if they just couldn't call them the hand or hand ninjas, um, and why they wouldn't. You know, they, you know, hand ninjas typically wear red. But I just thought it was cool that there were just tons of these ninjas that were, you know, jumping around the roofs and spying and you know taking out the guards and stuff like that. I thought the, all that stuff was handled really, really, really well. Some of those um, scenes with the ninjas are taken right out of the books as well, like the one where he's walking down the, the street and he has all the arrows in his yeah. back with uh, with all the ropes, you know, of all the ninjas trying, you know, trying to take him down and pull him, uh, pull him down. That's uh, you know, right out of that uh, the book. Like you said, it isn't a, a straight up adaptation at all, but it definitely has the flavor and some of the element, the main elements that made that story work so well back when it came out in the eighties. Um, it also, I think changed a few things especially in the third act that i didn't like as much um but i you know overall i i you know i, I found the more movie more of a positive than a negative and definitely streets ahead of, of x-men origins it kind of got rid of like the silly elements you know one of the things we you know with x-men origins wolverine was it they kind of tried to play up the comedy a little bit and we had the whole fred dukes blob thing and uh you know wolverine kind of tried to be a little uh, a little more lighthearted in some cases and was kind of like joking or whatnot. Um, and some of the characters acted a little goofy. And I think this kind of wiped that slate clean. This is a much more serious Wolverine, a much a much more serious tone to the movie in general. And we didn't have those kind of silly elements that I think drugged down uh, the last one. Well, this was a character film. This was not a... Uh, this was not some big action-adventure set piece, although there were action adventure set pieces within it it was based on his character and not you know trying to appeal to a wide audience or trying to just uh do what kind of crazy thing can we put in here for the most part at least and in a lot of ways it's an homage to the um 
you know, the, the Japanese and, and, uh, Hong Kong action cinema too, you know, from, from an American's point of view, right? you know, the director James Mangold, um, you know, there are a lot of, I mean, it's ostensibly an, an Asian action film, you know? Yeah. One of the, one of the things in that kind of that third act of the movie that started out with him, with them, with, you know, with the, with the ninjas, uh, hitting him with the arrows, with the, with the cables attached to him. One of the things that disappointed me just a little bit, I would have liked to have seen him go one on one with those ninjas a little more fiercely. Like, not to drag it out too much, but I think that scene, you, you know, you kind of see Wolverine as the badass and be able to take on all these ninjas. And it seems like they kind of took him down pretty quick now granted there was the whole poison aspect to it but i just would have liked to have seen a little bit more of that fight before they finally you know took him down for good well i mean it's hard to say because i mean i think at that point in the film we as audience are as audiences are ready for the final battle the final confrontation we're ready for the story to wrap up not in a get it over with way but just in a you can you can tell that the the structure of the film is moving towards that and even wolverine as a character at that point, when he gets to the town, at a certain point, he's just like, you know what? I'm, I have no time for this stupid ninja fight. I'm just going to push through and get on to my final destination, save the girl, and, uh, you know, stop whatever's going on here. And so he just tries to push through. And I, I kind of, while I agree, it would have been cool to see him fight more ninjas on, in a one on one or one on 100, more realistically, um, structure seeing him just kind of try to push through and get where he was going rather than even deal with it was kind of a cool and very Wolverine thing, I thought. Yeah, true. True enough. One of the things you kind of alluded to earlier, Jordan, as well, was the the plot complexity, and I kind of use that term a little lightly. It's not like it was some, you know, crazy, uh, you know, Sidney Lumet film or some, you know, kind of spy thriller <laughs> no, that, no. you know, you know, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy kind of thing going on. Um, but, but I agree with you. There are times where you had to kind of keep track of the parts on the, you know, the pieces on the board to figure out who was on whose side and who was trying to do what, because it, it seemed like at the, at the time you had those that were loyal to Yoshida, those that were loyal to Shingen, um, both kind of with Wolverine in the middle. And, and for a while you weren't sure, you know, kind of who was playing who and what, and what was going on. Um, but, but as it kind of got towards the end, um, and you got, kind of got the reveal that, you know, Mariko was the one that was going to be left the company and, you know, she was being passed over. Her father was being passed over. And, you know, that, you know, that kind of played into, uh, you know, a lot of the intrigue and stuff. It, it made it a little clearer, but I kind of like that you had to pay attention a little bit, that it wasn't just a mindless superhero movie that you just, you know, turn off your brain and, you know, look at the violence. It had those aspects to it. Um, but, but you did kind of have to pay attention to what was going on. Oh, yeah, and it didn't take me out of the movie at all. It was just more of a, wait, I thought you were working with this guy, but now you want him dead, or, wait, okay, so the ninjas work for you and not for you like we thought, or, okay, so the politician now, he wasn't really important. And, and again, yes, you, you, you couldn't just turn off your brain, which is something I definitely appreciate, but there was just so many little factions that sometimes keeping track of them was a little bit taxing. As for the overall plot structure, I didn't think that was confusing. In fact, I thought everything leading up to the Silver Samurai was fairly straightforward and even maybe slightly more telegraphed than I would have liked. Yeah, yeah, no, I I agree with you there. And the Noburo character, who was uh, Mariko's, you know, soon-to-be husband, 
uh, was was pretty well spot on from his character in the in the book. I mean, he was just a a hole in the book. He was an a hole in the movie. Um, you know, <laughs> treated her poorly in both. Um, but again, I think that's where you get a little bit of the amalgamation. Um, they show in the book it was it was you know the the husband that kind of smacked her around here and there. Uh, and in this, it was the father that did that. So again, we kind of got a little bit of a of a of a moving around of the parts. Uh, you know, and, and splitting a little bit of this, but um. I, I did have to laugh though, and this is a, uh, a decent sized spoiler for the movie. But Wolverine sleeps with Mariko, and then 15 minutes later, he's tracking down her fiance. And when he finds that that guy is cavorting with some other woman, he goes, I thought married men weren't supposed to, or, or engaged men weren't supposed to do that kind of thing anymore, and throws him out a window. I was like, that's a bit of the pot calling the, the, the kettle an adulterer there. Yeah. You know? Well, did, and Jim, maybe you caught this. Did you catch the, uh, the similarity between this and Diamonds Are Forever, uh, with the whole throwing out the window scene? Yeah. Yeah. I think I did. I saw a couple of nods to a couple other things too, like the, the sequence on the train. Um, was reminiscent of, uh, of a Hong Kong action movie I remember called City on Fire, which is actually was, uh, uh, parts of, you know, the plot were what Reservoir Dogs was based on. So, I mean, I saw little nods all through to other movies. Um, and I, I thought, you know, the, the, the characters pretty well, uh, uh, like what Jordan, I'm sorry, like what Jordan was saying, up until the, the, the third act and the whole Silver Samurai thing, I thought it was pretty straightforward and, I really didn't have any trouble, even though there, you know, obviously were changes from the, the source material or whatever. But, um, I don't know. I just, it, it, the movie ended pretty much, you know, between, as far as, you know, um, Mariko and, and Logan's relationship, it pretty much ended the same way it did in the comic too, with her, you know, being, you know, bound to her duty and, and having to follow a separate path from Logan, even though they love each other, you know. But yeah, that was a little bit of a hypocrisy there, uh, as far as, you know, him, him getting mad at her fiance right after her. Not that Wolverine is exactly a, uh, a a banner of moral virtue that we can look to or anything like that, but it did just kind of, I was like, uh, you know, you can be mad at the guy, but you don't need to be insulting him for something you just literally did um, in the same situation a, a little a little while ago. But, um, but yeah, I did think that scene was funny, though, particularly in the way it wrapped up um, with, with the, with the uh, one-liner after he threw him out the window and, and just... The general, I mean, that was actually one of those few scenes in the movie that did have the comedy we were talking about before, but it didn't feel out of place. It felt, because it was one of the few moments of it, and it wasn't just like a bunch of slapstick stuff like you had in X-Men Origins, it fit and it felt fine. Yeah, yeah. But it just it was just funny, because there's that, there's that bit in uh, in Diamonds Are Forever, and I think it, it was Jill St. John that they, didn't they throw Jill St. John out the window, and um, I forget the character. It's a big character actor, looks at at Sean Connery and goes, I didn't know there was a pool down there. And it was just kind of, it just made me laugh when I saw, when he said the same thing. He's like, I didn't know there was a pool down there. But he said it much more gruff. Like, it was very tongue-in-cheek in Diamonds Are Forever, and this was very, you know, very gruff as as he walked away. But anyway, I just I, I just thought that was kind of funny. Yeah, I've never actually seen Diamonds Are Forever. Um, I know, shame on me, whatever. But I've heard that line before, so I wonder if it was the first movie to have that or a similar line, and other things I've seen have referenced it, or if it's referencing an older joke in and of itself. I don't know. Yeah, me either. Sorry, can't help you. Overall, I like the action in this movie a lot more than the last Wolverine movie. I like the story a lot more than the last Wolverine movie. I thought the tone 
like Russ said, you know, it didn't have that goofiness that the last Wolverine movie had. You know, um, I don't know. It just, it, it was a little more grounded in reality, quote unquote, at least until we get giant adamantium robots near the end. And I think that's what I appreciate it about it. Um, it kind of also gets what, what makes Wolverine cool. Like the kind of, the, the scenes I kind of played to why people appeal or, you know, why that character appeals to people. You know, he's the badass. He, you know, he, his will is the strongest thing. You know, even though his body heals all the time, it's, it's his mind and his will that, that overpowers. Uh, I don't know. It's just like, it seemed like they got what made Wolverine cool as opposed to in X-Men Origins where they just tried to, I don't know, they don't like walking away from explosions and stuff like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, it's funny, you know, you bring up, you know, he's a guy who heals all the time. I'm amazed we have not talked at all yet about the fact that Wolverine is not healing in this movie. That for the entire second act, pretty much, he has his mutant healing factor, I wouldn't say completely gone, but highly, highly suppressed. And we talked about this when I was on Out Now talking about the movie, but that was really cool to see a Wolverine who, while not a weakling all of a sudden or, or something like that, you know, suddenly has to struggle with pain and with, not that Wolverine doesn't normally experience pain, but has to deal with this ongoing pain and wounds that aren't healing. And when someone punches him in the face, not only do they hurt their hands because he's got a metal skull, but the ringing hurts him and the camera takes a slight... Uh, Dutch angle and jilts to the left or the right and everything goes out of focus for a second. Every time he gets shot, you you feel for the first time in any of these six movies so far that uh, Hugh Jackman has played Wolverine in, you feel that, not that Wolverine's going to die because obviously he's not going to die in a movie called The Wolverine, but there's suddenly stakes, there's suddenly tension, and there's suddenly a little bit more of a human there that you can connect with. Yeah, I get that. It's kind of when they took Superman's powers away in Superman 2, um, you know, to try to make, to humanize him or whatever. I, um, I, I, I it was weird though, because you, you make a good point, Jordan. His, his healing powers weren't totally taken away. You know what I mean? I mean, it was obvious. I mean, he was taking the kind of damage like Bruce Willis takes in a Die Hard movie, you know? Right, right. <laughs> and still standing and walking, you know? So, I mean, I guess it's all relative. I just, it was like, you know, you know, is he is he still having a ceiling factor? Is he not? I mean, he has twenty arrows in his back. I mean, that would kill most people. Well, by the time he has the the, air, the twenty arrows in his back, he's got right, a ceiling factor back. But right, but I mean, he's taking a lot of abuse otherwise, and poisoning. He gets poisoned a lot in this movie. Yeah. Um, especially, I mean, with the and uh, I just want to take a minute to ask really quick: Why is Viper even in this movie? I couldn't. I mean, tell she you. Do, it just looks like you know. Um, you know, maybe this this woman slept with the director or something, so he had to write her in. I mean, I don't, I don't know. It just seemed like she she didn't really seem to have a place in the movie. Uh, you know, in the final battle, she's like up in the rafters giving Yukio something to do, other than helping Logan. You she know? was just I like mean, a plot device. I mean, but it, she was there yes, to take and away the, his and powers. The character was, and the and the and the, the portrayal of the character was just terrible. I mean, she's a cool character. I mean, if you look at um. You know, some of the newest, newer Hydra stuff, like Enemy of the State or whatever. I mean, she can be really badass. And here you know, she she's was on the Council Ivy. of Hydra. Hmm? And here she was Poison Ivy. Yeah. From yeah, Batman yeah. and Robin. But I mean, yes. the thing is, I get why she's there. She's there because they need a way to take Wolverine's powers. Fine. And if you have to have her in there to take away her, his powers, I think it's a net positive because taking away the powers was a really cool element and added a lot to the film. That said... You are dealing with the X-Men universe, and while we don't know the specifics of the licensing contract between Marvel and Fox for the for the X-Men franchise, A, 
even not knowing that contract, I'm really surprised they have access to Viper. I would think she would be more highly tied to S.H.I.E.L.D. and to other non-X-Men things. But regardless, there are so many mutant characters that they have access to, or ones that they could just create as an amalgamation to take away his powers. Why did you need this character who has a very complex backstory that you can't even legally touch because it would deal with Baron Von Strucker and S.H.I.E.L.D. and all this kind of stuff that you just don't have access to? When there are so many other options, you can you don't even need to make them a major character. Just it's a doctor that he's working with who's figured out a way to take away Wolverine's powers. They didn't make it a complicated way to take away his powers in this movie, and it didn't need to be. So why do you need a big time supervillain character to be the one administering this this quote unquote cure, if you will? Um, it, it just seemed like not even that they wasted the character, but they didn't even need to have a character there to waste. Yeah, it just seems so superfluous and just like, I don't even know what, like, I kept wondering all through the movie, I'm like, is she going to actually play into this story somehow or is she just going to, but I mean, like you said, other than, you know, her weak tie to, you know, taking its powers away or whatever, you're, you know, the character is, is way, I mean, you want to try to bring Hydra into all of this and you already have all these, you know, factions in the movie that we're trying to, you know, separate and keep, and, and keep straight. I mean, I don't know. It just seemed like, you know, she just did She walked in from the wrong movie. And that movie was Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. That's exactly what I said on Out Now, yeah. I just kept thinking of that that performance. It was so much like it, you know? Oh, it was just over the top and 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 terrible. The only thing I could think of is maybe Fox was going through the list of properties that they were in danger of losing if they didn't use. And maybe they were, you know, just struggling to add mutants that would, you know, I guess makes sense in their mind. I think this was maybe like a suits decision and not so much a but I, I don't think that the way these contracts would work is that you have to use every single character or you lose them. It's you have the X-Men license and you have to use that or you lose it. Cause I, a more uh, subrogated contract than that would not make any sense to me, uh, both as a lawyer and just as a human being, um, you know, I guess and, maybe and Jim, it, de- saying- it depends how they're classified. I mean, like, so so Fox lost Daredevil. My guess is they lost Daredevil, Bullseye, Kingpin, Elektra. Well, they didn't lose Elektra. They still have Elektra technically. Is that right? From what I understand, yeah, she she wouldn't um, she would not revert back for another six months or a year. Um, it's not likely they're they're going to u- use her though. I wonder if that's just because she her movie came you know a year year and a half later exactly yeah. that's exactly yeah. why so I don't I, yeah I don't know how they're structured or whatever I, who knows but, but yeah uh, I agree she was superfluous but to get back onto the the whole Wolverine losing his his healing power to me as, as a thirty year Wolverine fan what makes that character when he's most interest when he's the most interesting is when he's he has vulnerabilities um when i first started wolf reading wolverine he yes he had the heightened healing factor and you pretty much knew he wasn't going to die but if he got shot or seriously injured it would affect him for sometimes several issues before he fully healed back or before you know things weren't happening and um, and I always thought that was way more interesting than, um, you know, than the way they portrayed him, even in the movies, you know, when he fully has his healing factor and especially in the comics nowadays. But w- one of my favorite issues of all time is Uncanny X-Men 205, where he, where Wolverine is attacked and 
for that whole issue, because of how much pain and how injured he is, he pretty much goes berserk and almost kills one of the Power Pack kids um, who finds him in the snow and pretty much is able to help him, you know, get to a point where he could heal up and kind of get his wits about him. Um, but when you re- read that issue, you really felt like the chaos and the fact that, you know, something serious could happen to this character that could have repercussions that maybe wouldn't be permanent, but would last for a while. And then, you know, we went into the mutant massacre and the same thing. He was severely injured and was having to fight, you know, hurt. And to see that in this, I thought was re- is really the, the key point in this movie that makes it so interesting to me uh, again you you know he's pretty much going to get his healing factor back you know he's not going to die but for those parts where and again you were you were talking uh, jordan about the way that it was filmed where you know you get the skewing and the kind of out of focus and the blurry vision and you know the fact that he's you know always looking at his wounds and you know how it's affecting him psychologically because he's not used to being in that predicament you know he's never had to worry about you know being you know being killed or being severely hurt i mean he's he definitely feels pain and he understands pain um you know in the in the very first x-men movie one of the you know when him and rogue first had their interaction you know she asked him if it hurts um and he looked at his knuckles and said every time so you know he definitely feels pain but there's no peril i guess is is what i'm getting at and and pain that goes away very quickly sure. once the wounds have healed here they're not healing and and it was kind of cool like you you said this in, in a way but not only are his wounds are not healing and he's looking at them but he's i don't know if confused is the right word but it's almost like when uh when your phone starts going on the fritz when you've had that phone for a few years and or your car or whatever and what's the problem with this thing now like if it never did this before, I can't figure it out why. Only in this case, it's his body. It's interesting to me. Russ makes an excellent point. I mean, the character used to have a healing factor, but it wasn't to the point where he'd take a bullet and the skin would close over it with a CGI effect in 30 seconds. You know, it was the kind of thing where he might be able to take a bullet and be over it, you know, in a few you know hours or what have you. I mean, it got out of control, I think, even to the most part in uh, um, uh, Ultimate Hulk versus Wolverine. Where they ripped Wolverine in half, and he healed from that. Well, at least that um, was the ultimate. Yeah, universe. yeah, but yeah. still, I mean, it just it just goes to it just goes to prove my point. I mean, he's kind of been uh, overpowered in the movies and uh, and, and in the comics, I think, lately with the healing factor. And by taking that away or toning it down, you really do humanize the character. You're right. One of the sequences that I thought worked really well, um, that I was very leery about. Uh, in seeing the trailer and the previews, because just based on the very small bits we saw in the trailer, uh, and Jordan, I think you alluded to this even on when we did our last, um, I think a really big show episode was the train sequence um, and the yeah. whole fight on the train. I was really worried about that because some of the CGI that we saw in X Men Origins Wolverine wasn't uh, exactly top notch, and so I was a little concerned to how that was going to play off. Um, and it actually worked really, really well. I thought it didn't look silly. It didn't, uh, it didn't come off as being really phony. I mean, obviously, you know, how realistic can you get of two people fighting on top of a bullet train? Um, but I, I thought it came across really well. I thought it was a really cool sequence that, that worked way, way, way better than I thought it was gonna, is going to. Yeah. In context, it looked great. It felt awesome. And it was actually, a little funny too in parts again not in a slapstick way although there was people hitting things which was kind of funny um 
but just in a contextual a fake out in, in a contextual way. It was funny. Yeah. I mean, we've seen that that uh, kind of sequence so many times. You know, I mean, going back, I mean, you referenced James Bond before. That's probably the first time I remember seeing it was in a James Bond movie, the fight on top of the train. And uh, just the one scene where Wolverine is flying at the camera with his claws extended, that just, I mean, that really, um, that was quite a Wolverine moment. You know, it's very Wolverine. You know what I mean? It was something I would expect to see in the comic. You know? And for whatever reason, in the trailer, that looked terrible to me, cg Yeah, yeah, I agree. In the finished film, I thought it looked great. Yeah. Yeah, I thought in context, exactly. You know, that was the, well, that was where I was going. But yeah, in the trailer, it looked pretty cheesy. But in context with the rest of the fight choreography, I thought it worked pretty well. And I really enjoyed the action in this movie. Yeah, I think the last time a train sequence like that worked that well was back in 1989 in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade when they kind of had that crazy uh, circus train chase that was going on. I thought that, um, the, this is obviously much different than that, but... But it, but they. Well, I mean, it's such a trope. They made fun of it in the movie Top Secret with Val Kilmer, yeah. if you remember. Correctly. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I, I thought that that worked again way better than I thought. Um, the Mountain Man Wolverine stuff was a little interesting. Um, I think again, it was just kind of one of those necessary bits to show it's been a long time. You know, several years at minimum have passed. I mean, he's definitely withdrawn. Um, and the part with the bear was, I, I thought it was maybe a little forced. I mean, I get what, what he was, he was going for with it. Um, I, again, to establish that he's become this pacifist, uh, and everything. And then Yukio coming in the bar to, to kind of, the bit with the sword I thought was cool with the bottle splitting and, and everything else. Uh, I thought, I thought it was pretty neat. Yeah, and it sets her up right off the bat as a character who's not to be trifled with, even though she looks like a young girl. Right. The other thing, too, that happened, right, you know, they get on the plane, and she even asks him, like, are you, I, I can't remember if she says, are you afraid of flying, or do you not like flying? And he's like, no, it's fine. And you, he has that look, and that, again, another callback to the first X-Men movie when they get on the plane, and he's just like, you know, we find out right away he does not like flying at all. Um, no, it's like taking a dog on a plane. Y- or something. Yeah, exactly. They're just uh, <laughs> freaked out about it. Yeah, but I thought that was that was kind of a cool callback that they, um, you know, that they they went to that. So again, we got these little, you know, nods to to you know the other movies and what what's come before. And again, I think we got more nods to the other X Men movies than we did the first Wolverine movie. And I think you know part of that was was on purpose in in my mind. And in a way that doesn't take away from this film or make you feel like you're missing something, just in a way that fleshes it out. And if you've seen those other things, you get to go, oh, I, I know what that's talking about, or I know what that that camera shot is or what that reference was. Um, but it doesn't take anything away if you haven't seen it, which is the perfect way to do it. And unfortunately, seems to be very hard, especially in a lot of these um, spin-off movies, franchise movies, where it becomes very necessary to have a you know, a comic book fan's knowledge of whatever franchise it is you're talking about. But this one seems to have nailed that balance pretty well between um, contextual things that flesh out this movie based on other movies and things where if you haven't seen those other movies, it's just confusing. Right, right. So I guess we talked a lot bit about the positive. I guess we can maybe talk about, and I hate to say negative, but the things that maybe didn't quite work as well as the rest of the movie or as, as we'd hope. Um, so Viper, yeah, yeah. Other than Viper, um, <laughs> and the Silver Samurai, but the Silver Samurai, and I think, 
I, I, that honestly didn't bother me too much. Yeah, no, I agree. It it didn't. I, I know there was a lot of ire uh, on the net about that. It didn't. It didn't really bother me too much. It, it came across a little cheesy, given how straight they played most of the movie. Um, so the fact that there was like this, you know, octogenarian inside a suit of adamantium keeping him alive um, with this crazy, uh, glowing adamantium sword was a little off but not again not crazy i I'm, I'm glad there was somebody in there doing it rather than just trying to play it off as this crazy crazy robot um <laughs> the world's craziest bone marrow transplant machine yeah that too um but i thought it was interesting how they made a point of saying you know he made it his life's work to gather up all the adamantium that he could you know find and and you know and build this this suit which i think again if you're gonna if you're gonna make a a an enemy formidable of Wolverine, you need something that is just as durable as he is. So instead of having the adamantium on the inside, this, this, you know, character has the adamantium on the outside. Um, I'm sorry, man. You could have made that entire suit out of a hundred percent Gouda and it wouldn't have been as cheesy as that was, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, I just, you know, it just seemed like, oh, He's going to fight a giant robot. But wait, no, the old guy you thought was dead is inside. Surprise, you know. I never thought just, the old guy was dead. No, I didn't either. Yeah, I never really bought it either. It was kind of like, you know what it reminded me of? It was Peter Wayland in uh, um, uh, Prometheus. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Only you know, with had the same kind of really, bed. really bad makeup effects. the exact same kind of bed, you know, the, the contour, you know, bed or whatever and everything. And, oh, no, he's not here or whatever. He's dead. And nope, old man's still alive. You know, I, I yeah, that was not much of a reveal for me. I just thought it was kind of, I don't know that they, they could have easily, you know, given him a formidable foe with just a fusion sword that was able to, to, you know, to, you know, take away his claws or whatever. I mean, that would have been. I think that would have been enough. I think they might might have gone a step too far with the giant hulking armor or whatever. That's just my opinion. I kind of like the the character design of the original Silver Samurai. I wish they had gone with more of a variation of that rather than something that looked like, you know, the robot from, I don't know, pick a movie. It just looked like you know generic robot design. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, and, and then, but one of the things I think they did here, which I thought was extremely bold, um, and really surprising to me was they, you know, use this, this fusion sword or this fusion adamantium sword or whatever, and, you know, cut off one hand's claws. And at that point, I was like, okay, that's kind of cool. Um, and obviously the bone will grow back. And I thought they were just going to move forward with him having one hand being Admanium and one hand being Bone. Um, and then when they cut the other cl- set of claws off, I was like, wow, that's that that was to me, I think, maybe the most surprising thing in the movie. And the fact that they carried it forward. Um, and we'll, oh, yeah. And we'll get to the to the end credit sequence. But when they showed him in that end credit sequence and the claws were still Bone, I was like, holy cow. They you know, they they they, they they're sticking with it. Um, and I think that'll be a great visual in Days of Future Past when Old Man Wolverine gets sent back into his younger body and he pulls out his claws for the first time and he gets to look at them and, you know, glint the light off them a few times. You'd be like, it's good to be back or some some kind of cheesy but still fun one liner of, you know, it's to separate the, the old from the young in terms of Wolverine, a quick visual cue and a and a cool thing for the character as well. Yeah. But when, but real quick, when did, when exactly, you know, what decade did the um, 
events in, in X-Men Origins Wolverine happen where he gets the adamantium. I mean, he's supposed to be traveling back to the Wolverine in the 70s. I mean, does he even have adamantium at that point in this timeline? Uh, uh As long as it's just late 70s, he should be fine, right? Because they were put on in the early 70s, No, right? I think it was mid... They, they're real nondescript. All we because if he well wait well if he goes to the school and rescues Scott Summers and Scott Summers is probably like fourteen, okay so it's probably puts it like ten years before X Men one. Yeah, probably more than that. So, maybe. but he was also on the run for a while. Remember, X Men Origins Wolverine covers a wide period of time. He didn't just get the claws and then go rescue Scott Summers. I mean, he was living in uh canada for a while and no that was all that, that was no he didn't have the claw no he no. gets the claws after he lives in canada and after they kill silver fox that's when he gets the adamantium injected oh so, maybe a few weeks i don't understand like yeah i mean maybe he i mean he might have the bone claws when he goes back to the old wolverine yeah. so, okay i think in that timeline he wouldn't have had the adamantium yeah because this is nixonian right? this area is nixonian so we're talking Pre, you know, pre nineteen seventy, you know, nineteen seventy three or before, um, so somewhere between, you know, seventy, probably seventy and seventy one and seventy three. So if that's the case, the the stuff, the bit in in X Men Origins where he's with Scott Summers, if Scott's about fifteen and he's about thirty in the year two thousand, so we're talking like nineteen eighty five when all that. Well, when did Three Mile Island happen? That was what seventy nine. Sounds right. 81. I wasn't alive, so I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. I think it was 81. Three Mile Island was 81? I think so. So I think this, I think they were trying to tie in what happened at the end of Origins as the Three Mile Island incident. So, yeah. This is what happens when we delve too far into the wonky X-Men continuity. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, That's a good point. I guess he will have the bone claws even when he goes back into his younger self. If not. No, you're right. 1979. You were right. It was March twenty eighth, nineteen seventy. Yeah, so I think we're still, we're still. It would be still bone claws. Yeah, we, you know? he should still be bone claws. So it would be interesting to see what they do with that if they give him the the metal claws. But um, well, also, I mean, depending on what version of time travel they use, he's not going back into the same universe. Technically, he's if everything that we've seen so far, aside from Days of Future Past is, or I'm sorry, instead of First Class, is Timeline 1, and Days of Future Past and First Class are Timeline 2, then maybe he already had Adamantium at that point in that timeline. This is why some time travel stories make my heart hurt. <laughs> yeah. And I need to go lay down for a I, while. I was happy, though. You know, we talked about this on Really BS, and, well, how is it going to work if, or now we adding in a third timeline where it's a dystopian future, and so how does that jive with the first class timeline and the standard X-Men timeline but from the end of this movie it appears that no the standard X-Men timeline is the one that becomes the dystopian one and we are still going to be able to hopefully fix everything by bringing it back to one timeline at least that's how it appears to me so that was a very exciting thing to see you know outside of seeing um, Magneto and Wolverine and Magneto and Professor X show up. Uh, well, I guess it, I guess is a good time to get into it. So, you know, as as happens with well, it happened with the first X Men Origins Wolverine movie. Um, after the the final credits, there was actually a couple different scenes. One was him in a bar in Japan. The other was you know the Deadpool thing where he picks up his own head at the end. 
Um, but Marvel Studios proper has kind of made it their thing where at the very end of the credits we see, um, you know, some sort of teaser for the next movie or, or something, you know, that, that lets us know what's going on in this larger world. So in this one, they, they took more a page out of like the Green Lantern playbook from, from DC or even the, I guess Amazing Spider-Man wasn't that like a, a mid-credit scene, that little bit? That wasn't at the very, very end, was it? Um, I think it was mid. Yeah. And and the first Wolverine had a mid as well, because that was where uh, oh, yeah. Striker. Striker is walking. Right, right, right. Um, So this this had a mid-credit scene. I knew it was... Oh, com- and the Avengers had a mid and an end-credit scene. Uh, true, true, yeah. Uh, this one, it was pretty well advertised that it did have a mid-credit scene. There was no surprise to it. I purposely stayed as far away as possible from anybody that would say anything about what it was. So I went into it completely cold. Um, and I'm glad here. I did. Because it was really, you know, so waded through the credits. We see him walking through the airport. Um, he asks to be opted out, which I thought was kind of funny, you know, and wants to be, you know, wanded because obviously he's full of metal. And I think he even says something like hip replacement or I've had a hip replaced or something like that. And all of a sudden he stops dead in his tracks. And at that point I was like, oh, that's cool because obviously it's Magneto. And we don't even see him, but we hear him starting to talk. Um, but before any of this, I, sh- I got a little help myself. We see on the TV it's like um, an advertisement for Trask Industries and how they're keeping, you know, keeping the future safe and all that. So obviously this is a call to what's going to be a huge plot element in Days of Future Past with uh, the Sentinels and the character of Bolivar Tracks played by um, Peter Dinklage. So we we got Magneto's little spiel, um, and then as soon as all the people in the room froze in their place, I was like, oh, now that is cool. Um, and sure enough, we see um, Professor Xavier in his little, you know, cool, badass little wheelchair humming through the, the crowd. And the cool thing about this was... Wolverine even looked at him and said, how, how is this possible? So they haven't shied away from the fact that the continuity of X-Men 3 was Xavier being killed, um, you know, in the first third of the movie, uh, and, and, and that happening. Um, so he's, he's obviously surprised to see him. And also Magneto shouldn't have any powers, although from the well, end of that movie we know he does. But yeah, Wolverine yeah, yeah. doesn't know that. Right. Um, and and then he you know he says you know I've told you once before Logan you're not the only one that's full of surprises or something like that so the whole Patrick Stewart as Xavier thing I think they totally can play that off as we saw at the end of X three that he he put his consciousness into the body of a man that was basically a vegetable um, and reached out to Moira McTaggart in in the in the Patrick Stewart voice so. They could easily gloss this over as it's all an illusion that really Xavier looks like that man that was in that bed. He's just making everybody think that he looks the way he does. Um, and I'm guessing the whole wheelchair bit could be either to adhere to the illusion or to, you know, who knows what the case may be. Um, getting he just doesn't like walking around, and, and who can blame him? Yeah, he's got a badass wheelchair that hauls. I mean, that thing was hauling ass. Um, yeah. I was waiting for him to clip one of the pedestrians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but they talk about this growing evil. And and also to be known that this movie takes place two years after the end of The Wolverine. Um, and we've been told subsequently that that Days of Future Past will take place ten years, approximately ten years after, uh, after X3. So 
we can kind of guess it's been maybe three or four years since the end of X3 that Wolverine, that the Wolverine takes place. Um, and then two more years after that. So it looks like that, that Days of Future Past may be anywhere from three to five years, um, after the after this this credit scene that we saw at the end of the Wolverine, I have to say this is that was probably one of the best post credit scenes I've ever seen. Well, it certainly got me hyped for uh, Days of Future Past. I I love those two actors together, McKellen and, and Stewart. I mean, playing off each other, like the scene when they're playing chess in the end of X Men. Yeah. Um. Just I mean, it's just great to see you know that you know that leading into that. I'm just saying from all we saw from Comic Con and Days of Future Past and everything else. I'm just, you know, I couldn't be more excited for it. I don't know. I'd say if it's the one of the best ones I've seen, but it was certainly a lot of fun. Yeah, I just, I, you know, just in terms of being unexpected and informative and being, you know, worthy of, you know, sticking around and checking it out. I just, I was really, really impressed with it. W- one of the other things that we got towards the end of the movie when, when Yukio and Wolverine took off in the jet, and she said, uh, you know, I can go. We we can go you know anywhere or when you know she's you know she said to st- for him to stay behind he said no I'm a soldier and he gets in the plane and Yukio says well we can go anywhere we want I so badly wanted him to say you know when she said where do you want to go or something like that that he was going to say Westchester I really I was it, it was like I was waiting for it at the edge of my seat for him to say Westchester because I thought okay he's going to take her with him um, because she is a mutant they kind of they downplayed that to a degree in the movie that she could see somebody's death in the future but i really thought maybe he was like okay it's time to go back to the school i'm beyond the whole gene thing it's time to get things straight i'm going to take her and you know oversee her you know her training you know at the school and it didn't really happen and that was fine but but i just i i was really really hoping that that he would have said westchester i liked how it left it open as in you know their adventures will continue they can go anywhere they want. The stories can go anywhere they want. Um, Westchester would have been cool, but that ties you into one story. Yeah. Or one type of story. Plus, they could easily do another Wolverine movie with Yukio in it. So, Which would be cool. I'd pay to see that. So, anybody else have anything to say? Are we good for ratings? Uh, I think I'm good for ratings. Yeah, let's do it. Go, Jordan. Out of 10, I think I'd give this one a solid 8. Few minor things that bothered me, and it's not, you know, it's not really in my wheelhouse of, you know, the type of movie I'd go see generally. Um, but I think it rose above that in many cases, and I really did enjoy it quite a bit. It's, it's, I'd say, probably my second favorite X-Men movie behind First Class, and I really enjoyed it. I too give it an eight. Um, there were a few things I didn't enjoy about it, but overall, I thought it was, uh, you know, pretty well done. I liked the action in it. I liked the depiction of Wolverine. It seemed like the people making this movie got what made Wolverine cool, and why people enjoy that character, and and kind of put that up on the screen. And I was happy to see that, as opposed to what we'd seen in in Origins, very much improved. Um, I enjoyed the, um, you know, the performance uh, uh, of you know the character of Yukio. I thought she was great. Again, there were a few minor things I didn't appreciate about it, but the, the good definitely outweighed the bad, so I give it an 8 as well. I give this one an 8.75. So not quite a 9, not quite, you know, cream of the crop. Uh, I definitely think X2 and First Class were both better than, than this one, but I think this one, for me, is probably third. Um, very close with the, with the first X-Men movie itself, but... Um, 
you know, the guy pops a claw, cuts his own chest open, reaches up into his heart to to stat to snuff out a a nanobot. That that pushes it above the eight for for me. Um, <laughs> it, it's it's the Wolverine movie I always wanted to see. I mean, when they first started talking about this, they talked about him going to Japan. I hoped it would be this good. Uh, and for me, it, it fully met, you know, every expectation I had. And in some ways it exceeded them. Um, you know, the, I, I, I was a little worried that it was straying too far away from the Claremont Miller story, but the changes they made made sense, um, made it, you know, probably a tighter, you know, more action, you know, in some ways, a, a more action packed movie. Um, overall, I, I would have liked to seen a little bit more of, uh, Wolverine on Ninja action, but, but I thought, you know, the locales were great. I thought the, the, the way it was shot was great. Um, Mangold definitely did a great job. So yeah, I mean, very, very high praise. Um, and, and I hope this, this bodes well for Days of Future Past, which anybody that's been either listening to, to any of these shows, um, on our network, especially, you know, back in the Legion of Dudes days when we talked about a lot of X-Men stuff. We 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 covered Days of Future Past, um, and that's definitely one of my favorite X Men stories of all time. So I I uh, I have a lot of a very high standard for this movie coming up, but uh, but I trust in Brian Singer, and uh, we'll we'll see what we go for Hugh Jackman's seventh outing as the the Wolverine character. I cannot wait. I love those posters they've been putting out. Not just the propaganda posters, but the X posters with uh, young and old Magneto's faces yeah. um, kind of amalgamated. Very cool stuff. Yeah. So are we actually going to ever have a Cowboys and Aliens show? Yes, I am committed. This is Because <laughs> um, we keep, we keep, we keep, uh, I mean, because, I mean, obviously our summer has been so packed with uh, superhero movies. Yeah, we will definitely be doing Cowboys and Aliens next, um, at which time we'll spin the wheel to tell us what's next. Just with everything going on, we got caught up in, you know, we had three, you know, fairly large, uh, summer comic movies, uh, to cover, and we decided on Real Heroes that we we're going to stay current as well as, as dwell in the past. Um, and we just had, you know, May, June, July hit us with Iron Man 3, Man of Steel, and The Wolverine. Uh, I, I know a couple folks have, have talked about, um, you know, whether we're covering either Two Guns or Red Two, uh, they're both, uh, you know, based on on comic movies. Obviously, I just haven't had a chance to see Red Two. I, I liked Red One quite a bit. Yeah, that was a surprise one for me. I, I yeah. did not expect to enjoy it, but I had a lot of fun. Yeah. Um. So you know, I just I I we just haven't gotten a chance to to catch those. Uh, we got a pretty crowded schedule in general, so I think those. Unfortunately, they'll probably just go on to the list for us to spin the wheel on at some at some point in the future. That's um, a good way to do it. Yeah. Yeah, but but it's just not something, unfortunately, that we're going to cover um, up to the minute, uh, as it were. So I think the next, uh, I believe the next current movie. I don't know that we'll see. Unless uh, if you guys plan on seeing Kickass Two, maybe we'll try and squeak Kickass Two in there. Uh, I definitely plan on seeing it. Uh, I was a pretty big fan of the first one. Believe it or not, my wife was actually a pretty big fan of the first one, um, just because of the kind of comedy aspect to it. So I'll definitely be seeing it if we can get a group together. We'll 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 maybe record on that. But I I am committed that the next one we do will be Cowboys and Aliens to get that off the off the docket, which has been slowing us down a bit. 
It's kind of like our second preacher episode. It was a curse for a while. <laughs> yeah, finally, yeah. And we finally got it out. Like what? Like two or three years later, we finally got around to doing another. Well, one. Well, this one won't take that long. Yeah. Real quick, uh, just on the feedback side of things, uh, I did solicit uh, before the weekend on our Real Heroes Facebook page, which you can find it if you look up on Facebook, The Real Heroes. Um, Mr. Malcolm Taylor put a comment on there, um, and his thought he said. He was surprised by the people who didn't understand the point of cutting off his claws. The way I saw it, it was to get at Logan's bone marrow for his DNA. Same thing I thought. Y- yeah, I didn't. Yeah, that's what I thought too. I didn't have a really big problem with it. I you know some people were just like, "Wow, that's a pretty elaborate and very specific um, mechanism to plot out and plan out that it exactly is spaced out properly to dr- you know to drill into his you know claws and get all that." Um, I didn't overthink it that much. <laughs> Um, I just thought it was kind of. And a cool I didn't think concept. it was so much for to, to just get his DNA. But if you, you know, listeners want to Google some of the research they've been doing in the past, you know, couple decades on bone marrow, and bone marrow transplants, uh, just Google uh, AIDS cure bone marrow transplant, and it is a fascinating read of some of the things they've been able to do. It's not just getting the DNA, but it's actually transplanting bone marrow that can do some pretty incredible things. Now, granted, how that applies to fictional mutant genomes i don't know but even in the real world it's pretty amazing some of the stuff they've been able to do plus it has the pain factor a bone marrow transplant is extremely painful from what i understand yeah no i I agree but yeah i I agree with him you know that i was kind of surprised by that i mean this is a comic book movie at its core so the fact that they would do something you know rube goldbergian even you know if you can call it that uh, doesn't really surprise me and didn't take me out of it at all so those are my two cents but uh, please, you know, g- check out the Real Heroes group on Facebook. Uh, leave comments. You know, we're trying to get better about posting as we're getting ready to record shows or as, uh, you know, some of these movies come out to get people's thoughts uh, and what, uh, you know, and, and feedback on that. Uh, you could also leave us an email at realheroes at hhwlod.com. Uh, you know, head on over to hhwlod.com. You're, you can check out all of the shows that we have on the network from, you know, Walking Dead TV podcast, Long Box of Doom, the uh, Half Hour Wasted, Out Now with Aaron and Abe, uh, The Black Box, Sean Pryor's po- podcast. You know, just tons and tons of, of content that we have available. Uh, there's all the subscribe links where you can get the get the show either through iTunes or through you know, your podcatcher of choice. Um, if you do uh, listen to us through iTunes, please head over to iTunes and leave us some reviews. Uh, that helps out with the show, helps us get noticed um, and helps more people uh, be exposed to, to all the cool content we have uh, on the HHWLED podcast network. Um, if you want to leave us an audio message, you can either email yourself uh, in an MP3 file to the real heroes at HHWLED.com or send us a voicemail you know, through your telephone at 516-468-7912 and just let, the, let us know that you're calling in regarding real heroes. And uh, we'll start to play some of those. I'd like to be able to get some some more feedback on the show other than what Malcolm Taylor left us on Facebook. Um, so until <laughs> next time, when we promise it will be Cowboys and Aliens, unless it isn't, uh, this is Russ signing off. Have a good week, everybody. Later. Gaijin. <laughs>